Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the program, you could always give me a call on the listener hotline at 303-832-0217. You could also contact me on any of the contact links in this show. And, of course, if you would like to rate, rinse, and repeat I sure would appreciate that as well uh, on whichever podcast app you are listening from. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about flood-damaged vehicles. Uh, two interesting interviews here today. One is uh, I'm going to be talking to Emily Voss. Emily is the Public Relations Director for Carfax. As you know that uh, th- there are a lot of flooded cars down in Florida and down in the Carolinas and, and up in Kentucky from their historic floods and, and previous uh, hurricanes we had in the Northeast. Well, when these cars go out, sometimes they'll be uh, totally flooded out, right? I mean, to- underwater where they cannot be driven anymore. Well, you'll make an insurance claim on those cars. And then sometimes if they are still drivable, workable, they could end up as a salvage car on a salvage lot and then in uh, in a dealership near you or a, a, pers- a private seller near you that might be trying to sell you a, a crappy car and trying to get away with it. So Carfax thinks that there's over 350,000 vehicles that have potential flood damage from Hurricane Ian. That is tremendous, and that's on top of like 400,000 vehicles already out there with flood damage, and used cars are, are hot right now. And so we'll talk to Emily all about this issue, really what to look out for when it comes to flood damage and some of those helpful tips, that sort of thing, because uh, even if you live in the middle of Kansas, you could have somebody trying to sell you a flood-damaged car from Texas or from the Northeast or even down from the Southeast part of the United States. Uh, so I think that's an interesting topic. Uh, and also my brother-in-law, Adam Klatskin, who was like a big deal guy uh, over at Sky Ridge Medical Center, part of Health One. And Adam is uh, one of those folks who who he, he basically runs the, uh, I don't know, the communications, if you will, like all the phones and all the other systems and security systems and all that kind of stuff. I think that's right. Uh, <laughs> over there at the hospital. And, and he's part of one of their disaster teams. So if there's some bad thing happening weather-wise, like the hurricane hitting Florida, uh, they'll send him as well as a few other people down to that area to help coordinate an evacuation of the hospital. And so I thought it was interesting. He and I were talking uh, after church one day about his experience being down there and what it was like trying to evacuate a hospital where there are also tens of thousands of people evacuating at the same time. And then that was in Tampa and then trying to get down to uh, Fort Myers, where they also have some hospitals, and then evacuating that at, at you know right there as the storm is is about to hit and after the storm has hit. So uh, it, it was interesting to hear from his perspective of what uh, apps were helpful for him to find directions and how they were navigating some of the roads that were either washed out or closed or uh, open and and what was the best ways in and out from an area that he's been to. But obviously isn't as familiar with as if he lived there. So you really have to rely on uh, mapping uh, apps and and software. And it was just interesting to hear some of those uh, uh, anecdotes that he was telling me. And the one thing that that Adam said to me that stuck with me is that Waze was the most helpful app by far. And and I was thinking it's because it's a user-based app. Because there are people out there driving right now using Waze 
and putting real-time information in the app of what road is open, what road is closed, where you can get around, and that's obviously very helpful for the average daily commute, but in a situation where you have roads that are washed out and an emergency situation, it is vital, especially for emergency personnel who need to move around these areas. You might have a a rescue, a fire truck that's trying to get to a road. They don't know that it's washed out, and they, they come across it, and, and it's washed out, and, and those few extra minutes could be the difference between them saving somebody's life or not being able to save somebody's life. So I thought that was interesting that Waze was the most helpful, um, more so than Google Maps. I find there's a lot of information on Google Maps that are fed into their system from uh, DOTs, from state DOTs, and from local uh, police or from uh, the local municipalities. And that information isn't always updated as soon as it should. There's a lot of times construction information is sent into these into Google Maps, and it is it, it's set to expire at let's say 5:30 in the morning because that's when they. But they might open early, or they might be running late, and so that's then there's nobody updating it at early. And it's just an automated system, so it doesn't work as well as ways where people are actually driving around and reporting roads open, roads closed, construction happening, construction not happening, uh, stuff like that. So I thought it was pretty interesting from uh, Adam's perspective to to hear that um, and uh, how people are helping people. You know, it was just an interesting perspective in that flooding area. Um, it, it, actually, in this episode, I, I was supposed to uh, have an interview today for you uh, talking about rail. Because there's no doubt that the population of the Mountain West is expanding quickly in Colorado and Montana and Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas. Uh, but we have what we have here in population growth, we lack in rail routes. The East Coast has all kinds of rail. Uh, but not so much here in the West. It's e- it's easy to get around from, let's say, Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. I mean, you have rail routes going all the way through there, and it's been that way for a long, long time. But there there aren't those kind of rail routes here in the West. We have a couple across the country that'll stop through Denver and and keep on going to California or over to Chicago. But there's nothing like they have in the East Coast. Now, the Colorado Department of Transportation and the Cheyenne Metropolitan Planning Organization and Wyoming Department of Transportation, they were going to study the feasibility of a public transit connection via rail uh, along the front range of northern Colorado and southern Wyoming, basically going between the little towns of Fort Collins, uh, where Colorado State University is, and Cheyenne. And I was going to talk to Amber Blake, the director of uh, the Department of Transportation here in Colorado's Division of Transit and Rail. But Amber, uh, I, I told Amber that I, I wanted to talk about uh, more the big picture of rail and what's it like here in the West and why this route, uh, you know, some other just general rail questions, not just that they're having this um, uh, feasibility study and that you can weigh in and give their website. I mean, she was... Uh, I, I was going to ask a you know a, a range of questions about, about rail, um, and then she uh, I got a note that says uh, we, we're declining to do the interview. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, why? Uh, well, it took a couple of days to hear back from them, and they said, well, we're just not comfortable talking about rail. Okay, <laughs> why, uh, why why not? You're 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 the uh, uh, division of transit and rail director, and you're not. 
and comfortable talking about rail in general, uh, that that confused me in in a lot of ways. I, I I'm not that scary. I'm I'm not asking you gotcha questions here. I'm just curious because we have curious listeners who uh, who I think this would be an interesting topic and and not just give out a website and say that you want people to to give feedback about the feasibility of a, a rail line between the little town of Fort Collins and the little town of Cheyenne, Wyoming. I mean, why not a big town like Denver to a bigger big town like Colorado Springs or uh, a big town like Kansas City to a big town like Denver or to Phoenix or something like that? Why these two? Because it seems to me that it would be so expensive to one build and and to maintain and to run and for the very few people that they were saying maybe 30,000 vehicles a day travel across the northern Colorado-Wyoming state line. Well, you got to think at least 20% of it is truck traffic. So let's say there were six or 7,000 vehicles are, are trucks. And so that leaves us a little over 20, 23,000 vehicles that are traveling. So maybe those are commuters traveling around or, or some, you know, a few are going to be uh, uh, just uh, recreational people, right? But let's say there's 20,000 actual commuters between Cheyenne or, or northern Colorado and southern Wyoming. Even if all of those 20,000 used the train every single day, would it be worth it? Uh, is the cost worth it? I mean, we're talking billions of dollars to build trains now. In, in Metro Denver, we have a uh, commuter and light rail system, and it's run by the Regional Transportation District, RTD is what our transit, they do the buses to. And uh, years and years ago, what, 20 years ago, uh, the the city, uh, the group of counties around here that is part of the RTD district uh, voted to uh, be taxed and have that money collected to build more light rail and some commuter rail through Metro Denver to certain areas. One of the rail lines that was supposed to be constructed was going to go from downtown Denver up to Boulder and then up to Longmont. That rail has never been built. Why? Too expensive. They just don't have the revenue that they've been collecting for the last 20 years to build out that line. So we have a, a, a train line that is not being built, that already has money that is supposed to be being collected by, uh, by the RTD uh, from the taxpayers of the metro seven or eight county metro area uh, to build this tra- uh, train line. And that hasn't even been constructed yet. And they think they're going to build a, a, a test to feasi- find the feasibility of a rail line between uh, uh, Fort Collins and Cheyenne. Uh, Cheyenne, I think, has a 65,000 people in it, something like that. Uh, Fort Collins probably has that, it, it maybe a little bit less. So you, you, can't, you can't build a rail line that already has money coming in from Denver to Boulder and then to Longmont, but you can sure uh, find out if, the, if it's feasible to do a smaller one uh, that costs more money uh, to some place that nobody wants to go that's a 40-minute drive away. Anyway, we were supposed to talk about that, but we're not going to talk about that. We're instead we're going to be talking about floods. So, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm I'm big and scary. Um, I, I you know it would be cheaper. I think a cheaper option to do uh you know the bus rapid transit thing between those towns. I mean, look, just ask Amtrak how expensive rail is. Seriously, the rail always has to be subsidized. Those costs never go down. They only go up. It is obviously cheaper to be on a bus, but people like trains more than buses. They just do. 
They like the station and they like the train car and they like the ride and they like to be all where the streets are not uh, around them and where the street, you know, vehicles can't go. Uh, they're, they're very popular, obviously, in Europe, but those cities are closer together, easier to get around, smaller populations than the U.S. cities. Uh, and, and in the U.S., compared to Europe, you know, is is especially Eastern Europe is enormous. It's just different here than it is in Europe. And everybody wants the that that's in love with the rails uh, want want us in the United States to be like it's Brussels. Well, we aren't Brussels. <laughs> We're not Amsterdam, and and the United States will never be that. So, but it also made me think: if you're a train engineer, I've always wanted to have a train engineer on uh, the show here and tell their story. I've always wanted to talk to a trade engineer. Uh, if you are a trade engineer or know a trade engineer, I would love to hear from you, and, and I would love to uh, uh, get you on the show. So contact me on any of the contact links. Uh, send me a uh, uh, send me a note, and I'd love to have somebody on that's uh, that's a uh, that's a train engineer that rides the rails all the time. So uh, even even European trade engineers, I have a WhatsApp number. So go ahead and call me too if you <laughs> if you're in Europe and you're a trade engineer. I'd love to hear your story as well, as long as you can uh, speak English, kind of okay. Uh, I'll take you as well. But anyway, as I was way off topic, so let's bring it back to the topic at hand: flooding. When there's a building that that sits in a flood zone and it's refurbished or rebuilt, you pretty much know that that building was in a flood zone. And what to watch out for if there if there could have been a flood that that damaged that building, right? It's a whole other thing to know if a vehicle has been damaged by flooding because the vehicle can move away from where the storm was. Widespread flooding across Florida and the Carolinas after Hurricane Ian soaked an enormous number of vehicles, and and they could be sold at a uh, well at, at an auction or a uh, not unscrupulous dealer near you or even from a private seller, even if you don't live anywhere near Florida. To talk more about this and what to watch out for is Emily Voss, the Public Relations Director for Carfax. Emily, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks, Jason. So happy to be here. So before we get into this flooded out cars business, you came from the world of television and left for <laughs> left it for your public <laughs> relations job. What's it like outside of TV from a person <laughs> that's still in TV? Is it good to have the uh, holidays off, I'm sure, and, and never have to work in a snowstorm? That was the first thing I was going to say. I get holidays off and I'm home for dinner. So uh, <laughs> that's the advantage. But I do miss that, that newsroom camaraderie and... Um, you know, all things that we love about being in a newsroom, but, um, it is interesting to be on the other side. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've tried to get out a couple of times to be honest with you, Emily, and it's never worked out. So, uh, I'm, I'm still here and I'm, <laughs> I'm still plowing through. <laughs> so I read from the Carfax blog that there could be over 350,000 vehicles. That is a lot of different cars and trucks and vans and vehicles that have potential flood damage from hurricane Ian. There, there has to be a percentage though, that are, are probably totaled, but a lot of these wet cars that aren't totaled will probably end up in a used car lot somewhere or either online. Yeah. So just to put that number in perspective, 
before Ian Carfax was estimating about 400,000 vehicles on the road with some sort of flood damage event in their history. And now we're estimating in Ian alone, um, 358,000 vehicles were damaged in Hurricane Ian between Florida and the Carolinas. Now we do know that not all of those vehicles will end up back on the road. It is um, some a smaller percentage, probably about 50% of the vehicles end up back on the road and back in the used car market. So that's where anyone shopping for a used car should have this on their radar no matter where you're located. So I think it's top of mind, like you said, for a lot of buyers in Texas and Florida and Louisiana, but it doesn't matter where you live. This should be something you're on the lookout for. You guys have a flood check tool on your website, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I was reading there on on that blog on Carfax.com that there are are flood damaged cars basically in every state. And, And you guys have a list of the top 10 states with the most flood-damaged vehicles. So it it makes sense to see Texas and Florida and Kentucky on the list after their historic floods. Uh, The interesting states to me, though, on that list are at the bottom, California, Illinois, Michigan. Yes, so every year we look at the top 10 states, and it does change. Now, typically, Texas is number one. Texas has almost double the amount of flood cars, and that's that's not surprising. But we do know that um, Michigan, and actually just off that list at number 11, is Ohio. We saw a huge increase in Ohio in this last year, 26% um, h- a higher amount of vehicles in 2022 than there were in 2021 with flood damage in their past on the roads in Ohio. So yeah, Michigan, Ohio, we've seen um, big influx this year in Washington state saw a huge um, influx as well, right? The, the the two states that had the largest growth in the last year as far as the number of flood cars were New York and New Jersey. Now, that's not surprising when we remember Hurricane Ida from last year and where Hurricane Ida caused so much destruction. But then to see where those cars ended up, Pennsylvania, Ohio, they saw huge increases. But Washington state, that is an interesting one because there was a big increase in Washington state. Num- that was the Um, number four, as far as the percentage increase in the nation. And so we know that con men know that these shoppers in those Southern states that get hit by the hurricanes and even your New York and your New Jersey, those storms are top of mind for those car buyers, but the con men, they're smart and they know where they can make a buck and they're moving these cars to places where it's not top of mind for used car shoppers to even look for something like that. And and I think that's reflected as I'm talking to Emily Voss, public relations director for Carfax, as we're talking about flood damaged cars in the top 10 cities with flooded cars. You have Houston, obviously we're thinking Texas with the hurricanes and the historic flooding that they've had there in New York City, Philadelphia, also there on the East Coast, Miami, obviously, Dallas. But then you have Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, which suffered those huge floods. But Chicago, I don't remember a lot of big flooding uh, uh, happening in Chicago or Detroit or Minneapolis. It seems like those cities maybe are holding or or selling some of those uh, flood damaged cars from nearby. Right. I would definitely say we've seen a big influx in the Midwest in recent years as far as these vehicles um, being transported from other regions of the country that maybe got hit bad with those storms. And then those con men are, are buying the vehicles and moving them. And I think, you know, even this last year, when we look at the Ida flooded a lot of cars. We estimate about 200,000 cars were flooded in Ida in 2021. And we know that those cars are you know resurfacing in New York and New Jersey, but when you look at the states around New York and New Jersey, they saw huge percentage increases too. So there's definitely something regional with it as well. But um, that they're they're moving them cross country to Washington State to California. It, it 
they're they're taking them to places that people might not be thinking about it. Do the dealers or private sellers, do they have to disclose flood damage if they know about it? So this this varies state to state, but in um, in almost all cases, what I can tell you, if it has a flood branded title, um, yes, it, in in almost all cases, it needs to be disclosed. Now, there's a lot of different ways that these vehicles end up back on the road, right? They're um, they don't always end up with a branded title, but I'll tell you the most common route. So the most common route is someone has their vehicle flooded. Um, they reach out to their insurance company. Insurance company declares it a total loss. They pay the the car owner out insurance company takes the car over, um, get it, they get it retitled with a total loss of flood brand title. Um, and then a lot of times they'll put them up if, if they're still somewhat usable, they'll put them up at a salvage auction. So at the salvage auction, it's being fully disclosed. It's completely legal. And there's plenty of reasons people buy legitimate reasons people buy from a salvage auction and they know what they're getting, right? They know they're getting this flood car that was completely submerged. They know what they're dealing with, but the problem comes. And sometimes they're just people go to the salvage auction, they buy these vehicles and they're just going to go strip them out for the parts. But the problem comes when con men go to these salvage auctions, they buy up these flood cars, they clean them up. It takes a matter of hours. We've done um, demonstrations with this before. Literally, they can take a completely submerged, waterlogged vehicle in a matter of five, six hours, have it looking shiny, pristine, new. And then they turn around and they sell it to unsuspecting buyer. And a lot of, without disclosing the flood damage, and a lot of times the way they do this is they they act like they're a private seller on like a Facebook marketplace or a Craigslist or something like that. Um, and, you know, they're just that they're just this private seller selling this one off car, but that's not the case. They're in the business of this and they're they're turning these cars around. And we know with the current used car market right now, unfortunately, you know, supply is low and prices are at record levels. So there's no doubt that con men are going to take these cars from Ian and turn around and try to, and put them back into the used car market to make a quick buck. Well, that fraud is obviously a felony. It is Are there police or, or law enforcement looking for these people, or is it just rampant They're where they can't, can't find them? <laughs> there definitely are, um, and there are law enforcement um, agencies and associations that, you know, completely, that's they dedicate their time to, to title fraud. Um, but it does vary state to state. So it's hard to talk about specifically because it's not one um, federal regulation. It's, it, it does vary state to state in the language on that. Also, even what constitutes um, a branded title, what qualifies for, say, a total loss title or a flood brand title, varies state to state as well. So it's hard to, to get into all that. Um, but in general, the majority of these cars do end up with a flood branded title through their insurance, um, but they can get title washed um, where they're taken to that. I mean, it's it's not the most common route for these vehicles, but it does happen where con men will take them and retitle them in a state that has maybe looser regulations for branded titles and they get them a clean title essentially. Um, but that's why Carfax is important because if, if it ever has had a branded title ever in the history of the vehicle, even if it now has a clean title, it will still live on the life of the car on the Carfax report for the life of that vehicle. Um, but again, all of these, the, the title brandings, the different, the different kinds of brands, what qualifies that for that, even, even for insurance companies, the threshold for um, what's a total loss and what's not that varies state to state. So it's hard to speak, um, you know, broadly about that, but we know in general, the route that these vehicles take 
um, a lot of times they are called total loss by the insurance company and then completely legitimately sold at a salvage auction, but then just end up in the wrong hands. My guest is Emily Voss, Public Relations Director for Carfax, talking about flood-damaged cars and what you should look out for. If I'm buying one of those cars and it has one of these washed titles, are they not able to change the VIN as well? Don't they realize that if the VIN is the same, that you can still track the history of that vehicle? Um, I mean... Yeah, that's a whole nother thing, the VIN, the VIN changing, but that does, I wouldn't say that's the most common route for these vehicles. No, they aren't changing the VIN. And unfortunately, just people aren't doing their due diligence. They're not doing their homework. And I would say even more so in this current used car market, it's hard to find. If you have a specific, you know, your make, model, color <laughs> yeah. vehicle that you're looking for right now and your price range, it's hard to find that um, in inventory. So I think sometimes, especially in this current competitive market, um, it's kind of like what we've seen in the housing market where people are waiving the right to inspection, all that kind of thing, just to, you know, be competitive to, you know, get the house. <laughs> We're seeing that in the car market. People are not taking all the steps that they might have taken previously, looking at the Carfax report, um, taking it for to a mechanic for an independent inspection. That's crucial. You want to do all of those things so that you have confidence that you're not going to have issues down the road. But not all of these flooded out cars are going to be totaled and then end up in right. this kind of a situation. There will be some that will be wet that can be restored. And if I buy one of these cars that does have some flood damage, it doesn't necessarily mean that the car is going to be total crap. It, it could keep working just fine until the wheels fall off, right? So, yeah, I mean, most of these cars, so, so yes, there's not all of them are going to be named a total loss, but um, pretty much any car that has been submerged, even partially submerged, even if it, they didn't claim it a total loss um, and they were able to, you know, clean it up. They're, they are rotting from the inside out. Most of these cars, <clears throat> they have issues that you can't see with the naked eye. And and we've heard this story one too many times. Like, they run fine initially, right? So you're not having a problem right away. It, the problem comes a month from now, a year from now. And a lot of times it's like whack-a-mole. You fix one problem and then there's another and another. And and you don't always see them coming. And you know, it can be it can be something as simple as like bacteria in the ventilation system. And you that's not something you can visually see um, or know that it's completely cleaned out. So even though the car might still run, um, there are so many different things that can that are wrong with a car that spent any amount of time submerged, even partially submerged in water. And there's probably differences between salt water, like we saw down in Florida with the hurricane, yes. and with fresh water, like we saw in Kentucky. Yes, there definitely is. I mean, and and obviously the salt water, um, the corrosion, um, especially on the exposed metal, the, the the salt water is definitely worse than the fresh water. Now vehicles submerged in the fresh water do still have issues, but I will say the salt water, as far as like the long-term impacts, we know that to be more um, detrimental. My guest is Emily Voss, public relations director for Carfax, as we're talking about flood damaged cars. And Carfax has this free flood check tool on the website. You can find it at carfax.com slash flood. And I have a link to that in the description of this show. And uh, Emily, would you explain what it is before we talk about more what to look out for? Explain the flood check tool that's on the website. Sure. So this is just a, a free tool that we offer where you can put in the VIN, the vehicle identification number, which you can find, um, you know, in the windshield, inside the doors. There are several places on a vehicle that you can find the VIN. You put that into the free 
to the free flood check and we'll tell you if we have any information in that vehicle's history that shows us that it has any sort of flood damage, that it's been involved in any flood event. That, you know, whether that is a branded title, but maybe it wasn't as severe as that. And we just know that it had some sort of minor flooding at some point. Um, if we have any record of flood damage, it would show up through that free flood check. You won't see the whole Carfax vehicle history report, but you will see anything related to flood damage. Now, does that mean it's been totally flooded out or could it have just a little bit of flood damage? Let's say some of the uh, carpets were wet. We would see that as yeah. well. Any, any mm -hmm. of that? We any of that? Yeah, so any sort if we have any sort of flood event in a vehicle's history, it would show up in that free flood check. And that basically comes from somebody, the vehicle owner, who did report it to their insurance agency, and then that is then sent, uh, that information is sent to you guys, or you guys Yeah, and we have, we have, I mean, we have over 130,000 sources. We load 7 million records mm -hmm. a day, which is hard to even wrap your head around. Um, so we, it's not just insurance companies. We get information from a lot of different sources, um, but insurance and companies included. So yes, um, if, if we know of any flood event in that vehicle's history, it will be there in the Carfax report. But, but conceivably it's possible. I, I could have driven in a rainstorm with my windows down, never reported to the insurance company, just let it dry out, but it technically still has water damage to the car yet. Nobody would know except for me, the driver. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's go through some of the signs to look out for. First, probably, as, as you even mentioned, is easiest to tell. It's, it's like when you uh, go to the car rental agency, and the first thing my daughters do <laughs> is they run around because they can pick out the car they want. And so they, they run around, and they open up each door, and then they stick their head in and goes, Daddy, this is not the one. Uh, so <laughs> they, they, it's smell, the smell test is really probably the first and easiest one to I tell, I mean, right? that is, that's the one that will literally <laughs> smack you in the face. The smell test any musty odor, red, all the red flags. Um, but also we say a strong air freshener is something you should look for because sometimes they're trying to, it is hard to cover a musty odor. So what, if they have a very strong air freshener, what, what are they trying to cover up? Um, that's a, that's something you should ask. Um, and you mentioned it, the upholstery, the carpeting, um, anything, that just looks a little bit off. So are the, are the carpets damp is the obvious one, right? But also, look, are they new? Were, was the upholstery recently replaced? Or maybe some of it doesn't match the rest of the interior. So maybe they, you know, there was staining on one of the seats or a couple of the seats. And so they just replaced those. So all the upholstery and interior doesn't match. That should be a red flag. Um, and then we talked about the exposed metal. So especially if it was in a saltwater storm, the corrosion that you're going to see, look um, on any exposed metal. So the Hood and trunk latches um, under the dashboard, around the doors, and then anything that shouldn't be in the vehicle, as far as like mud and silt. Now they 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 do a good job cleaning the inside of the vehicle out, but a lot of times we still see some remnants inside the glove box um, or under the seats. Or if you ha if it's like a sedan, you open the trunk and you know how you can lift the floor of the trunk up, and a lot yeah. of times that's where the spare tire is. That is a great place to look because a lot of times there will be like a watermark or even some debris or silt that just got overlooked that's under there. So that's a that's a great spot to still look. But, um, but Emily, when you mentioned the damp carpets, I would only think that would last for a certain amount of time, especially out here in, in Colorado and in the West. Uh, the air here is so dry that, yeah. that things dry out really quickly, even something that might be waterlogged. So wouldn't that only be uh, damp carpets? Check that if, if it yeah. was a really recent event. <laughs> Yes. And, and honestly, most of these vehicles do end up 
um, hitting the road again. We saw a lot of the deals close from Ida, which happened, you know, around this, you know, in September, late September last year. Uh, Ida, those cars started hitting the market in a lot of times through the insurance auctions again in the spring and the summer. So these aren't necessarily vehicles that are going to show up on the roads in Colorado for sale tomorrow. Um, it's something to look out for in the coming months and the year. So yes, the damn carpets is something um, that yes, the damn carpets probably wouldn't last that long. <laughs> right. um, but, but, but looking at the upholstery overall, right? So like, obviously if it's stained, that would raise an alarm bell, but, but looking to make sure that it matches the rest of the interior that all did they, is all of the upholstery brand new? Um, and maybe the vehicle is not so new, but I will just, that made me think of something, another warning. And I've heard this story one too many times. When we think about something like hurricane Ian, there were car dealerships with plenty of new cars sitting on their lots that got flooded in, in Florida during Hurricane yeah, Ian. And those new cars, a lot of them get cleaned up and sent out. And I have heard so many times um, people have reached out to us and said, I didn't get the Carfax because the car only had 500 miles on it, a thousand miles on it. You know, like it's, it's basically was a new car. And I just didn't even think to look at the Carfax. Um, and but then can a, they started having... can a dealership legally do that? I mean, could they clean it up with their own porters that are there at the dealership, you know, get a, get a shop back and clean it up as best they can. And they just keep selling it as I mean, if it's a new car. Could, I mean, they could, but I don't, that's not really what happened. Most of the time they do the insurance claim just like an individual would. Um, and then it ends up getting, you know, the same thing process we talked to yeah, right. <laughs> talk through like the insurance company takes over sells it at a salvage auction you know so it ends up back in the market it, it, i mean yes they could so and a, scrup a scrupulous dealer could do that but most of these dealers especially the dealers that sell the new cars they're not doing that um and they're they're ending up back on the market but in a more indirect route right like backs coming back in through the auction route um, where at auction it's being disclosed and then someone buys it and turns around and sells it and doesn't disclose it. Um, but I would say it's just something to be aware of because I have talked to a lot of people over the recent years who have bought a vehicle and just said, I didn't even think, and then the, you know, the vehicle breaks down, they start having problems. Then they pull the Carfax and find out it was flooded in Texas when it had 10 miles on it sitting on a dealer lot. Um, you know, we have seen that story one too many times. So it, it doesn't matter how many miles are on the vehicle, even if it seems like a fairly new vehicle. The two things I recommend are look at the Carfax report and take it for an independent inspection. It'll cost you about $100, but take it to that trained mechanic, have them do like a once over through it. They are going to see things you or I might not see. So I gave you some of the little things you could look for around the vehicle. But even if you don't see any red flags pop up, it's still worth the trip to the mechanic. They're just going to see stuff that we couldn't see, let alone flood cars or uh, signs of an odometer rollback or anything. I just think for peace of mind and the confidence that you are making a good investment, the Carfax report, the independent inspection, and the test drive, those three things. And a lot of people do one or two of those things, but you really need to do all three to make sure that you don't have surprises down the road. Yeah, I want to I want to visit that topic in just a second again. But you also made me think of a friend of mine bought a hail damaged car, um, and that was never reported into insurance from the dealership for some reason, or at least it never came up on a Carfax or anything. They just discounted the car and then sold it as new with uh, the new everything. So uh, obviously mm -hmm. you're, you're going to see hail damage, and it's only exterior damage. The rest of the mechanics of the of the automobile 
it'll work just fine. It was right. it just looked like you were driving a, a giant golf ball. Um, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I think yeah. it's a little bit different there, but that never showed up. So let, let's say they 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 went drove through another hailstorm. That I guess they could have collected insurance if uh, if they claimed you know a new hailstorm gave them new damage. Yeah, and and that is, I mean, again, when like I, I'm guessing that the hail storm, the hail damage happened when it was sitting on the dealer right. lot. Yes. Yeah. So, and in that case, yeah, I guess, and they could just and they could disclose it, um, and just turn around and sell it. Um, and and here's the thing, if the seller's disclosing that it's a flood damaged vehicle, that's not really where the issue is, because then you know the information and you're buying it. The problem with these vehicles is, a majority of the time the seller's not disclosing it and they're hiding that it has, you know, flood damage in its history. And that's where the, where the major problems come is when it's not being disclosed. My guest is, guest is Emily Voss, public relations director for Carfax, as we're talking about flood damaged cars, what to be watching out for. You know, you, you, you said that going to a mechanic is is one of the best things you can do but there are a lot of folks that are trying to buy these cars and if they're buying from somebody that might not be the most reputable dealer or they're buying from a private seller they're probably low income buyers and they don't really have the money to spare it could be 2 or 3 or 500 dollars to take it to an independent shop and have it looked at and then if they find the car is uh damaged you're out as a low income buyer, you're out the two or three or five hundred dollars, and you still are behind. You have no vehicle, and yes, you know you saved yourself from buying something that's crap, but you're still out five hundred bucks. And so, I think a yeah. lot of people are going to go, "Well, I don't. I, I'm going to take the gamble." Yeah, and we so a couple of things on that point. We the national average is about a hundred dollars for that independent inspection. Um, I. And I know you, you know, if they find something, it's hard to walk away after you've yeah. already invested the hundred dollars. But here's the thing. It, it can cost you thousands and thousands of dollars if you don't know about something, you know, not to like broach into a different topic, but odometer rollbacks is a great, that's a, a great thing. And, and, and a mechanic can spot too, especially if you're looking at an older car, they can see that the wear and tear matches what the odometer reads. So the 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 amount of things that a mechanic can sh- check for you for hundred two hundred dollars, um, so that you have the peace of mind because these are issues that if you know for most of us a vehicle is the first or second largest purchase that we make and if there are issues down the road, basically you could end up losing a lot more than two hundred or five hundred dollars. So really, you have to go um, into this thinking that. that I am going to spend up to five or six hundred dollars to get a car that is going to save me in the long run thousands of dollars in repairs. Yeah. And we, I mean, look, if you, most of the time the seller will provide a Carfax report if they won't and you have to go buy it, it's $40. Um, but if they won't provide it for you, that should be a red flag. But if you do go buy it, it's $40. And then we say on average, um, a hundred dollars is what is what the national average is for that independent inspection. So really 140, let's say, you know, it, you're in an area that's on the higher end of that, but like around 140 to $200 should be the total investment between the Carfax report and the independent inspection. But unfortunately, if you buy, there's so many reasons. If you buy a vehicle that you don't know that there was an accident on it, for instance, you're going to be overpaying. So like if a vehicle has on average an accident in it or damage event in its history, on average, that impacts value by $500. 
So that's on average. If it had a severe accident, it's like $1,200. So if you don't know about that and there's things a mechanic can see or is on the car factory report, like that's why you have to do your due diligence because we're already in this car market where we're paying 40% higher prices for the same used car than we would have pre-pandemic. And then if you end up with one of these vehicles, when you go to sell it, it's not going to be worth what you paid for it because because it has events in it in its history that you didn't know about. And in the meantime, you're probably going to end up paying thousands and thousands of dollars in repair costs um, if you have an issue like a flood damage car. There are things that a mechanic will see. Uh, you were saying open the trunk. Uh, look under where the uh, spare tire would be. Maybe we're going to see some uh, some silt, or maybe we're going to see some sand in there. But there are things under the hood that only a mechanic is going to be able to see, or when they lift up the car, only those things you can see from underneath. Like there's there's wire issues, and and, right. and I would think that it's going to be a whole separate issues when you have not only the internal combustion engine vehicles, but now all these new electric vehicles are going to have their own set of issues. Uh, as we go into flood damage with, with so many buy, people buying EVs. Yeah. And there were, I mean, there were stories on the news and um, recently of some, some EVs that were flooded in Ian that have exploded in the aftermath. Um, so I think, you know, as, as EVs are becoming more popular, we're learning some of the um, issues that may, may come to, um, you know, I've only heard these stories secondhand, but I there has there's plenty of news coverage in the last few weeks um, regarding some of these vehicles in Florida that basically, I, I know the fire marshal in Florida issued a warning about some of these electric vehicles that that may have been submerged during Ian. So, yeah, I mean, and and even even a non EV, your you know your traditional vehicle has so many more computer systems in it now, yeah. um, and you know the electrical in these vehicles now is so. Um, advanced that yes, any, any water, I mean, we've all, you know, put our, dropped our phone in water when we shouldn't have or something. And we, right. we know what happens there. We'll just think of how yeah, put it in a, you, can, you can't put your car in a whole, bo- <laughs> uh, in a bag of rice, right? <laughs> in a bag of rice, right. <laughs> you can't drive um, your car in one of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, this might be a little too soon for me because I just dropped my phone in water last week and oh, was no. walking around with it in a bag of rice for a few days and I'm still finding rice in my purse, but oh, good. <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, I do think though that with these vehicles, you know, they, there are so many computer systems that especially the newer, the later model vehicles. Um, yeah, we, we don't, I think even fully understand the, the depth of like what the long-term damage is going to be to some of these vehicles. Does Carfax have a list of reputable mechanics that people can then go to and, and, and trust that they're going to get their car looked at the right way? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have, um, a service shop finder around you. So, um, and, and what's awesome about it, this is the best is it's verified rating. So like, when you go on Google or, you know, elsewhere, Yelp, wherever to look at ratings, um, you know, you don't know (laughs) if the person really went there or their friend owns the shop down the street or, you know, whatever it is. But these are people that we know um, went to and had a vehicle um, serviced at, at a certain place. So um, we collect reviews from them. So that's awesome because you're really able to find, um, a, a reputable service shop in your area. Yeah, and you, it's prob- a service directory. Right, so you could find not only the uh, reputable mechanic, but also probably a reputable seller as well. So you're not going down on South Broadway and <laughs> and going right to, exactly. You know, so 
Yeah. So we have, it's carfax.com slash auto dash repair. Um, but so it's fine service centers near me and you can put in where you are, or let's say you have a loved one in another city and you're trying to help them. You can put in, um, you know, where, what their location is. And then there'll be, you know, stores that come up and they have verified reviews. So these are people that we know have their vehicles serviced at, you know, Joe Smith's service shop. <laughs> and, and you'll see how many reviews there are, you know, 4.8 rating, whatever it is. But it's, it's just, I find peace of mind in knowing, you know, kind of on, uh, there's other services where you can tell like, you know, verified purchase where they'll say that by the reviewer. And it just gives you peace of mind to know that they actually did go there and use that service. And there's not something else motivating the the bad review or the good review. <laughs> right, exactly. All great information. Emily Voss, Public Relations Director for Carfax. If you need for more information, we should just go to carfax.com? Yes, carfax.com. And if you specifically want information on the flood topic, carfax.com slash flood has, you know, the telltale signs to look for that we talked about. And then also that free flood check that we talked about. I'll make sure I put the uh, link to all those uh, or yeah, the uh, the link to all of that in the description of this uh, episode so people can easily access it. Emily, thank you so much for your uh, insights, your uh, expertise, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Jason. Have a good one. Again, all that Carfax info, uh, links to the flooding page that they have, uh, all of that is in the description of this show, where you could also find links to contact me if you would like to contact me about this or any other episode or anything in general. Um, if you have a question, comment, concern about anything, just go ahead and send it, send it my way, and I'll see what I can do to uh, help you out there. Um, but it's all in the, uh, pers- in the description of this show right now. Next week, I'll be actually on the road. So it'll be my uh, daughter's fall break, at least around Metro Denver here. we the, the school year starts so early so they can give the kids this October break. And it's a full week off, just like you have spring break. This is fall break. So the whole week they have off. And uh, during the second half of the week on Wednesday, we are driving off to uh, South Colorado. So going from Denver all the way to this town called Pagosa Springs, and they have this uh, hot springs there that actually spill into the river. What is the river? The San Juan River, maybe? Uh, I think that's it. Uh, but we're going to stay at this uh, resort hotel that has uh, that's attached to hot springs, and then you can walk down into the river, and then the, some of like the hot spring goes in there, plus the cold water. It's a pretty cool mix, supposedly. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then we're going to go to the Four Corners and, and see that. I've been there once before. My daughters have not been there. I think it's pretty neat. I don't think my wife has any interest in going. None. Zero. She does not want to go to the Four Corners. Uh, But we're going anyway. And then we're going to stay uh, the night inside Mesa Verde National Park. And that's where they have those cliff dwellings um, from the Native Americans that used to live down there. And it is really fascinating to see. I haven't been down there in probably 25 years. And so I'm looking forward to seeing that again. I think that'll be fun. And the first time we're going to stay in the park, because um, it t- it's a long and windy, it's like a half an hour drive from the park entrance to get to any of those cliff uh, dwelling things. Um, so it, it'll be neat to stay in the park there. And then we're going to go to Telluride. We'll stay in Telluride for a night. Uh, and then we're going to go see the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which is kind of like a very small version of the Grand Canyon, uh, but it's pretty neat. Uh, then we'll see uh, Gunnison and Salida Woodland Park, where on that Sunday, my daughters have a competition, a baton competition. So we'll do that at the end of the trip. And then 
back home to Denver Sunday and back at it on Monday. Actually, I think I have that Monday off, which I'll, which I'll need. I'll need a day off to rest from the restful road trip. <laughs> Isn't that the way? Sometimes you need a day off uh, from the vacation. Anyway, thanks, uh, thanks for uh, always checking it out. Thanks for listening. And until next week, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.